Welcome to the reading of the weekend edition of the Sioux City Journal for Sunday, February 25th. I'm Dagna, your reader today. We will start with the mini editorial, which is written by David Atkins of Sioux City. And David writes, It has been said that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. It also has roundabouts. You can either go places or go in circles. Again, this was written by David Atkins. Our first article is about the Iowa Large Group All State Speech Festival. And this article was written by Nick Hytrek of the uh, Sioux City Journal. For about 20 minutes last Saturday, writer Malayli was nowhere to be found after he and partner Jenna Morris had warmed up for their group improvisation performance at Iowa's Large Group All State Speech Festival. Their coach, Jocelyn Holmes, had a pretty good idea where he was. Jenna hoped he wasn't where she thought he might be. I threw up a couple times, Ryder said sheepishly, laughing about how his nerves got the best of him and forced him into the restroom. But once the two Lamar's high school students had drawn their prompt, getting stuck on a roller coaster, and were in front of the judge, the nerves disappeared. We took the floor and I stopped being nervous because I love doing improv. A writer, a junior, said, During the following two and a half minutes, he and Jenna delivered their best performance of the season. All that remained was to see how it compared to all the others in the category and if they would bring home the coveted Critics' Choice banner. The moment the judge said, I'm, tear tearing, I'm tearing up at how good that was, I knew we had a shot, Jenna, a senior, said. Later that afternoon, Holmes was racing onto the stage of Iowa State University's Stevens Auditorium after hearing the announcement that the Lamar's duo had indeed won the Critics' Choice Award. While Holmes was heading to the stage, Jenna and Ryder celebrated in their seats. He had a winter coat on and I shook him, Jenna said, making a vigorous shaking motion. Then I collapsed because I was bawling so hard. Her reaction showed how emotional an experience it can be to receive the Critics' Choice Award and bring home the large banner that each school keeps for a year until the next festival. It's similar to winning a state championship in sports with one big difference. Schools are not divided into classes in speech. Students from the smallest schools to the biggest ones and all sizes in between perform and judges pick the best performances in each of 11 categories. It was a banner year for Northwest Iowa. Siouxland Christian had its usual strong all-state showing, winning Critics' Choice Awards in Ensemble Acting and Choral Reading. MOC Floyd Valley in Orange City brought a fourth banner back to Siouxland, receiving the Critics' Choice Award in Reader's Theater. Saturday's Critics' Choice banner was the first for Lamar's since 2001. A Rock Valley, Iowa native, Holmes was well aware of Lamar's tradition of sending groups to Allstate regularly. It's one of the reasons she returned to her home region two years ago to teach English and be an assistant to longtime speech coach Aaron Orland, who retired at the end of last school year. Now in her first year as head coach, Holmes said her advice to her students who qualified for Allstate was to represent their school and to do their best. Jenna and Ryder did just that. They nailed it, Holmes said. You could see it on their faces when they were finished. They knew they had a great performance. 
As it turned out, it was the best performance of the day as far as the judge was concerned. Her coaching career just getting started, Holmes hopes this year's success is something future students can build upon. I don't know when the next Critics' Choice Award will come. She said it's crazy. It took 23 years. It only took 12 months for Siouxland Christian to repeat what has become an annual tradition. This year's banners brought the small Sioux City Schools total to nine in the past six festivals. In choral reading, a group re re recitation of a script that may or may not include music, Coach Emily Hageman's 14-member group performed They Fly, a dramatic piece about the passengers on Flight 93 on September 11, 2001, and how they overcame hijackers before the plane crashed in Pennsylvania. Four members of the choral reading group teamed up in an ensemble acting, a 15-minute production with no costumes, makeup, or props other than a table and chair. Their piece was Make a Wish Anyway, about three friends coming to terms with the death of a fourth friend. Hageman said any of the school's five groups that qualified for Allstate had the talent to bring home a banner, but the state festival is filled with talent. We don't know what everybody else is bringing, said Hageman, who's in her 11th year at the school, and teaches choir, band, and theater in addition to leading the speech program. MLC Floyd Valley speech coach Joel Stauffer is another veteran coach who's taken dozens of students to the Allstate Festival during his 27 years at the school, where he teaches English and speech communications. This year, he had three groups perform at the festival, with a 15-member group earning top honors in Reader's Theater, a scripted 25-minute performance in which students interpret literature or a story without costumes or props. Their entry, Blizzard Voices, was a collection of poetry and stories about survivors and victims of the Great Plains Blizzard of 1888. It was MLC Floyd Valley's first Critics' Choice Award since 2012. You just can't stop smiling. I'm so happy for the kids, Stoffer said. It's a great honor for our entire program and our team. I think they can all celebrate that achievement. The coaches at the three banner-winning Siouxland schools are celebrating each other's success. There's quality work going on in Northwest Iowa regarding speech, Stoffer said. It's nice to see some of my colleagues who put in a lot of work receive honors. Hagman echoed that statement. I am so proud of Northwest Iowa, she said. I know how hard this corner of the state works. Parents seek answers to stun gun hazing, and this was also written by Nick Hytrack. Parents in the Hinton Community School District continue to seek answers about incidents in which upperclassmen on the boys wrestling team restrained and shocked younger teammates with a stun gun and the resulting disciplinary actions taken against coaches and three wrestlers. Two mothers of Hinton students said some parents are not satisfied with the school board's explanation of disciplinary action against two of the three boys involved in the alleged assaults. They also wonder why the third has been allowed to return to school. Parents also question why an assistant coach who was placed on paid administrative leave briefly was allowed to return and coach the team at the state tournament and why the head coach who remains on leave from his coaching duties is still allowed to teach in school and possibly have contact with the alleged victims. I feel like it's been hush-hush as much as they can from the get-go. If the public knew the details 
of these things. I don't know if the people of Hinton would support these people on the school board, one of the mothers said. Both women requested anonymity to protect the identity of their children. The concerns stem from an incident or series of incidents that allegedly occurred at the team's hotel at the state duo wrestling tournament on February 3rd in Coralville. One of the mothers said that on both February 2nd and February 3rd, two upperclassmen held down younger teammates on a bed and a third upperclassman shocked them with a stun gun. Both women have seen a video they say shows two boys holding another boy down and placing a hand over his mouth while a third boy shocks him with the stun gun as they taunt him. It is the most gut-wrenching thing. You can see this poor kid's eyes. He was terrified, one of the mothers said. As many as seven students were assaulted, she said, in Coralville or in previous incidents that may have occurred at another tournament. The other mother said to that to her knowledge, none of the boys required medical attention. When parents began learning what had happened in Coralville that evening they returned home, they contacted coaches. Both women said the coaches were more concerned that the allegations might hurt the program. He was more worried about how it would affect the team instead of the actual victims, one of the mothers said of a coach's reaction. She said she believed the coaches were not aware while they were in Coralville what had happened, but said they never visited any of the students' rooms during the weekend to check in on them. One of the mothers said she heard, said head coach Casey Crawford called a team meeting the next day, told team members he was disappointed to find out what had happened, then told them to delete videos of the incidents from their phones. When reached by phone this week, Crawford said he could not comment on the allegations. Crawford and assistant coach Woody Skoldas both were placed on paid administrative leave. Crawford remains on leave from his coaching duties and continues to teach math classes at school. Squadris was reinstated two days later and coached the team at last weekend's individual state meet. The three wrestlers involved in the alleged assaults were suspended for 10 days, one of the mothers said, and did not wrestle in the February 10th district meet in Mapleton, preventing them from possibly qualifying for the individual state tournament. The school board last week voted 3-1 to one during a special session to reassign two of the three wrestlers involved in the alleged assaults from school. The third student was to return to class Tuesday, a decision that has upset some parents. One of the mothers said the district's explanation was that his involvement was not considered to be as significant as the other two. However, when viewing the video, this person was an active participant in what happened, just as the other, she said. The term reassigning does not appear in the school board's policy manual that defines other student disciplinary measures. One of the mothers said she was told the reassigned boys will be attending school online only through the end of the year, but come to school after afternoon dismissal if they need to take a test. Superintendent Ken Slater said last week in a release statement that he was unable to comment on confidential student matters. Slater said in a statement, I can share that the district has policies and procedures to address allegations of student misconduct and is committed to providing a safe and positive school environment, Slater said in the statement. I cannot share any more info regarding personnel matters. In response to a list of additional questions the journal emailed him last week, Slater said the district had no other information to share. 
the school board's two vice presidents did not respond to emailed questions. Parents also are upset that Crawford is allowed to continue to teach during his leave from coaching, the mother said. He had access to the victims while there was an investigation going on by the school, hence why the investigation was not thorough. Not even all the wrestlers were polled to be interviewed, one of the mothers said. Police chiefs in Hinton and Coralville both have said they could not comment on the allegations because their investigations are ongoing. One of the mothers said several parents plan to attend the next regular school board meeting on March 18th to ask more questions. She said, this specific incident, someone needs to be held responsible, and that starts with the adults, then obviously the students involved. Former deputy wife arrested on child neglect, and this article was written by Dolly Butts, Orange City. An ex-Sioux County deputy and his wife are accused of failing to protect children from numerous acts of sexual abuse perpetrated by a child in their care. Caleb and Jill Haverdink, both 37, were arrested Thursday on seven counts of neglect of a dependent person, Class C felonies, as well as two counts of mandatory reporter violations and one count of making a false report to law enforcement, all simple misdemeanors. Both posted $5,000 bond and were released from custody. According to court documents, the Morris, Iowa foster parents had prior knowledge of a child in their care committing numerous acts of sexual abuse and sexualized acts against other children and took no meaningful action to mitigate the sexual abuse or protect the children under their care. The Haverdinks alleged inaction put children under their care at high risk of victimization for sexual abuse. The alleged acts began in 2019 and continued through October 23rd. Both are accused of providing inaccurate information about incidents to the Iowa Department of Human Services or providing information about completely different incidents that were later determined to be unfounded. In one case on September 1st, Caleb Haverdink reported an incident to a caseworker in a different agency. That caseworker told him to report it to the DHS abuse hotline, but neither he nor his wife did. After learning they had not reported it, the caseworker called the DHS hotline herself to report the incident, court documents said. The child was adjudicated a delinquent after admitting to five counts of second-degree sexual abuse, a Class B felony. A judge ordered the child to receive probation, be placed in a qualified residential treatment program, and participate in sex offender treatment, according to a disposition filed Friday in juvenile court. The Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation filed the charges against the Haverdanks after conducting a criminal investigation into them, Sioux County Sheriff Jamie Van Voorst and Sioux County Attorney Thomas Kunsel announced in a joint statement Thursday. At the time of the initial complaint, Caleb Haverdink was employed by the Sioux County Sheriff's Office as a deputy sheriff. To avoid any conflict of interest, the Sioux County Sheriff's Office and the Sioux County Attorney's Office immediately recused themselves from any part of the investigation and requested assistance from the DCI and the Clay County Iowa Attorney's Office, the statement said. After the DCI's criminal investigation of the Haverdinks works was completed, the Sioux County Sheriff's Office initiated an internal investigation to evaluate whether Caleb Haverdink's conduct was consistent with its policies and expectations. 
to ensure a fair and objective internal investigation, an outside investigator was retained. The investigation concluded Haverding's conduct was contrary to the mission of the Sioux County Sheriff's Office and his actions were in violation of established policies and procedures, the statement said. Van Voorst terminated Haverding's employment on February 14th. The Sioux County Sheriff's Office wants to assure the public that their officers are held to the highest standards of integrity and ethical conduct. The charges are deeply troubling and contrary to the values of the Sheriff's Office. Anytime an officer exhibits any level of misconduct, it will be dealt with swiftly. As such, Haverding's employment was terminated based solely upon his off-duty conduct, which was contrary to established policies and that which brought reproach upon himself and our agency, the statement said. The statement went on to describe the incident as isolated and not representative of the Sheriff's Office and his employees. The statement also said, this incident is extremely troubling for the community. Please also understand the distress which has been caused within the Sheriff's Office, County Attorney's Office, and surrounding law enforcement communities. As such, Sheriff Van Voorst and County Attorney Kunsel are committed to transparency and upholding our oaths of office. First, Sioux City Roundabout proposed in Southern Hills area, and this is by Caitlin Yamada of the Sioux City Journal. The City of Sioux City and Woodbury County are in the process of creating a roundabout at the intersection of Christie Road, Old Lake Park Road, Elk Creek Road, and Southern Hills Drive. The roundabout is part of a paving project for Elk Creek Road and is intended to improve traffic and provide better access for people who live on the dead-end section of Old Lake Park Road. On Thursday afternoon, Woodbury County Engineer Mark Naira Sioux City Engineer Gordon Fair and the Project Engineer DGR Engineering were in attendance for a public question and answer session for residents at Morningside Assembly of God Church. The project has two parts. The first involves paving the remainder of Elk Creek Road from the Elk Creek Development to Morningside Assembly, as well as moving water, sewer, and electrical lines from the intersection. The second part would create the roundabout. The project is estimated to begin construction in May and be completed in October. Fair said there would be road closures for approximately three months, but he said officials are working to narrow the time frame. It is estimated to cost $1.6 million, with the city paying $825,000 and the county paying $775,000, according to city budget documents. The roundabout would be the first in Sioux City. The only other roundabout in the metro area is on Dakota Dunes Boulevard. Naira said as traffic has increased in the northwest section of Old Lake Park Road off of Christie Road, residents have had difficulty getting onto that section of the road. There is approximately 60 feet between the entrance of Old Lake Park Road and the four-way intersection. The northwest section has 19 residences. While improving Elk Creek Road down to meet the residents of Elk Creek, something needed to be done to address that traffic problem because it is not going to get any better as houses and everything else are developed in this area, Naira uh, said. After researching the issue, Naira said the best solution for a five-road intersection would be a roundabout. Other options included purchasing homes from residents and demolishing them to create a connection to Southern Hills Drive or 
Christie Road. Residents said the current plan is to give each resident of the street two parking spaces in the Morningside Assembly of God parking lot and have golf carts available for transportation to their homes. Stacy Peterson and Grace Perrin both live in the dead-end section of Old Lake Park Road. Both said they do not currently have issues getting onto their road if people abide by the existing yield sign. While both said they are fine with the prospect of a roundabout, they are concerned about the construction process and access to their homes. Peterson said she is worried about the safety of younger individuals who would have to walk to their houses from the church because there are no streetlights on the dead end of Old Lakeport Road. Perrin said she has concerns with young children and elderly residents using golf carts to get to their houses. All we want is access to get down our road. It's very simple. If emergency services can get down, why can't we? Peterson asked. Because the road is county property, Sergeant Bluff Fire Department is responsible for emergency response. Sergeant Bluff Fire Chief Anthony Gall said the project is being designed to provide to always provide emergency access to Old Lake Park Road. He said, well, there are other ways to get to Dorchester Road and Surrey Lane, which are both outside of Sioux City limits, and therefore are Sergeant Bluff Fire's responsibility. The options add a minimum of five to six minutes to the response time. So Christie Road, at least half of that, will need to be open for emergency access to get through. Gall said contractors and other partners in the project will have to work together to ensure access is available. There will be temporary inconveniences, with driveways not being accessible and temporary water shutdowns, according to a flyer about the project. Parking outside of the construction areas will be required. Temporary mulch walkways will be provided. The topic is set to be discussed at a Woodbury County Board of Supervisors meeting on Tuesday at 4.30 p.m. Another roundabout was proposed in 2017 in the Riverside area. At the time, the proposed roundabout would have combined traffic for Paquette Avenue, Military Road, and Riverside Boulevard. The project was not approved. In August, the Iowa Department of Transportation opened its first Northwest Iowa roundabout in Orange City. More than 100 roundabouts are found in Iowa. The IDOT said roundabouts allow traffic to move more efficiently through an intersection and reduce the crash risk. There has never been a fatal crash in an Iowa roundabout, the IDOT said. Woodbury County keeps flat tax for 10th year in a row. The Woodbury County Board of Supervisors was able to achieve a flat tax for fiscal year 2025 this week. Tax rates next fiscal year for both urban and rural residents are predicted to stay the same with a very slight decrease due to work done by county officials and the Board of Supervisors. The supervisors were tasked with closing a $4 million budget gap to keep the tax levy flat. Tax rates for the current fiscal year are $7.14 for urban and $9.60 for rural. I think it's great news, Board Chair Matthew Ung said. While it doesn't mean the actual tax bill has decreased, it does prove that with inflation, with new real estate development, we're still not increasing the proportional size of the local government while we're providing increasingly complex services and completing a very expensive jail project. Without the work done by the county administration, the tax levy was estimated to increase by 26.6 cents per $1,000 of assessed value for city residents and 21.6 cents for rural properties. 
County Budget Director Dennis Butler said the urban will decrease by 0.03% and the rural will decrease by 0.07%. The budget for the fiscal year that begins July 1st covers county revenues and expenses to operate law enforcement, infrastructure, voting, and other county functions. Under a new state law, the county has until April 30th to set the budget, a month later than previously required. Historically, $2 million has been the gap that supervisors needed to fill to keep the overall property tax levy the same. So far, the board has been able to keep the tax levy steady for nine years in a row. Last year, the board had to close a $6.3 million gap to keep the levy unchanged. A new state law designed to limit local property taxes is one of the reasons the county is facing a unique budget season. Under the new law, known as House File 718, when property assessments increase between 3% and 6%, the growth for the general basic tax levy is limited to 2%. When assessments increase by 6% or more, the levy growth is limited to 3%. The supervisors were able to use funds from the delayed opening of the Woodbury County Law Enforcement Center, as well as other funding sources and reserves to reduce the proposed tax asking. The supervisors utilized unspent funds due to the LEC project delay on the fiscal year 25 budget rather than the new expenses, Ung said, as well as used reserve levels above the 25% target. Other discretionary funds and interest were used as well. The law now requires a county auditor to send budget statements to all property owners or taxpayers in the county no later than March 20th. Pair charged with robbery outside Gentlemen's Club. A Sioux City man and woman have been charged on suspicion of robbing a man at gunpoint outside of a Gentlemen's Club, then forcing him to drive to an ATM in an attempt to get more money. Sioux City Police on Thursday arrested Shaquille Harris, 29, and Ocean Ellington Harley, 26, on a charge of first-degree robbery. Harris also was charged with first-degree kidnapping. Harris is being held in lieu of $50,000 bond. Ellington Harley's bond was set at $25,000. According to a complaint filed in Woodbury County District Court, Harris approached a man near his vehicle in the parking lot of Mavericks Gentleman Club at 416 Cunningham Drive at about 11.30 p.m. February 15th. Harris pointed a handgun at the victim and demanded money. The man gave him $200. Harris then ordered the man into the passenger seat of his own car, and Harris drove it to a nearby ATM and ordered the victim to withdraw money. After the victim was unable to withdraw money, they drove away, and Harris got into a van driven by Ellington Harley, who had been following them and left, a court document said. During a police interview after her arrest, Ellington Harley said Harris had taken the gun from under the seat of her van and knew he was doing something bad when he approached the victim. When she saw him get the, into the victim's vehicle and drive away, she followed them. Police executed a search warrant at Harris and Ellington Harley's apartment and located a handgun, and Harris and Ellington Harley said it was the one used in the alleged robbery. Iowa House Passes Bill on Open Meetings Law The Iowa House passed a bill Thursday to strengthen Iowa's open meetings law, proposed by a Quad Cities lawmaker who said he was inspired by recent events in Davenport. The bill, House File 2539, would increase the penalties for public officials who violate the open meetings law and require open meeting and records training for public officials. 
a member of a government body who inadvertently participates in a violation of open meeting laws would be fined between $500 and $2,500. If a person knowingly violates the law, they would be fined between $5,000 and $12,000. Two issues in Davenport were the chief instigators for the bill, said Representative Gary Moore, a Republican from Bettendorf who proposed it. First, the difficulty journalists and members of the public faced obtaining records after the partial building collapse in Devonport last year. The second issue was the city's decision to approve a $1.6 million separation with its city administrator without a vote in public session. The separation with former city administrator Corey Spiegel came after prolonged and documented instances of harassment by some elected officials, according to a statement the city made days after it announced she was leaving her position. Nearly a month later, the council ratified the separation agreement in a public vote. Separation agreements with Spiegel and two other city employees involved around $2 million in payments by the city, but were decided without a public vote from the council, Moore said. The city attorney at the time, who has since retired, said Davenport Municipal Code allows the city attorney to direct litigation and approve settlements with the city, and the necessary approval from the council was received. When the separation agreement was publicly approved in December, acting city attorney Brian Hare said the agreements were being brought up on the advice of outside counsel. He said it was being done just to dot all the I's. The city and former city attorney face a lawsuit from a Bettendorf resident, an open records advocate, seeking the court to declare the city's action violated the law. The bill passed with near unanimous support in the House, 92 to 2. Representatives Phil Thompson, Republican from Brune, Brune, Boone, and Brian Losey, Republican from Bondurant, voted against it. It is now eligible for consideration in the Senate. Under the bill, if a member can prove that they voted against the closed session, had good reason to believe facts that would have indicated compliance with the law, or relied on a decision of a court or different body, they would not receive the fine. City councils, school boards, boards and commissions, and most of the government bodies are bound by the state's public meeting laws that require most meetings and actions of the body to be taken in public with opportunity for public access. Government bodies can enter into a closed session for a variety of reasons, including to review records that must be kept confidential, to discuss matters that are in litigation, and in certain hiring and firing situations. The bill would also require elected or appointed public officials to complete a training course with the Iowa Public Information Board periodically. The bill would cost $104,000 to hire an additional staff attorney on the Public Information Board, according to analysis from the Legislature Service Agency. Representative Brent Segrist of Council Bluffs said the board was likely going to hire a new staff member anyway because of a recent increase in open record violations and complaints. Ladies and gentlemen of the House, we're either going to have open public records in the state or we're not, Moore said ahead of the House vote. I ask you to support this bill. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal the, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. We'll now turn to the obituaries. Wesley Edward Whitehead, 90, of Sioux City, passed away Thursday, February 22nd at a local care center. 
Services will be held at 10 a.m. Tuesday, February 27th at Moore and Becker Hunt Funeral Home. Visitation with the family will be from 5 to 7 p.m. Monday, February 22nd, I mean 26th, with a prayer service at 6 p.m. at the funeral home. Burial with military honors will be at Logan Park Cemetery. Wesley was born April 15, 1933 in rural Plymouth County, the son of Marion and Marguerite Stevens Whitehead. While in high school, Wesley enlisted in the United States Army and served during the Korea War. He was one of the soldiers who built the runway for the airfield in Okinawa. After being honorably discharged, Wesley worked at Missouri Valley Machinery and eventually owned and operated his own heavy machinery company, Tri-State Track. Wesley married Donna Monk on June 25, 1976 in Sioux City. He loved the fact that he had all, all grandsons and enjoyed taking them fishing and was proud of all of them. He loved to tinker in the garage, but his biggest passion was politics. He was an Iowa State representative for many years and being a very civic and union-minded man, spent time giving back to the West Side and Riverside communities. He was on the Planning and Zoning Board, Simcoe Board, Riverside Community Board, and created an organization in memory of his daughter, Pamela, Association of Retarded Citizens. The family would like to thank Casa de Paz and Sulan Pace for their wonderful care of Wesley, a working man for working families. Marilyn K. Russell, 83, of South Sioux City, passed away on February 19th at Omaha Methodist Hospital following a brief illness. A celebration of Marilyn's life will be held at 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, February 27th at Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel, where family and friends will gather to honor her memory and share stories of her remarkable life. Visitation will be one hour prior to the service time at the funeral home. Barrier will be at Memorial Park Cemetery. In lieu of flowers, donations can be made to the Wakefield Healthcare Center Activities Department at 306 Ash Street, Wakefield, Nebraska 68784 in Maryland's name. Marilyn was born on September 25, 1940 in Cedar Rapids to Francis Draper and Sam Redinus. She attended school in South Sioux City. On December 24, 1959, Marilyn married the, man, the love of her life, Larry Russell, with whom she shared a beautiful journey. Together they raised three children. Initially residing in Sioux City, they embarked on a journey that took them to California and eventually back to Nebraska. Marilyn was a devoted wife and mother, cherishing her role above all others. Throughout her life, Marilyn held various jobs, including positions at Ponca Public School, Elms Nursing Home, Russell Hardware, and Bishop's Buffet. She also dedicated herself to assisting Larry with his computer software company until their retirement in May of 1998. Marilyn's commitment to her family and community was unwavering, defining her as a pillar of strength and love. Beyond her professional endeavors, Marilyn found joy in simple pleasures. She had a passion for bowling, crochet, reading, knitting, puzzles, and cardinals. Her enthusiasm for Nebraska football, fondly cheering on the team with a spirited Go Big Red, was infectious. She adored spending time with her grandchildren, sharing family stories, teaching them games like pounce, and baking her family favorite coffee can pumpkin bread. 
As she gracefully embraced her later years, she found companionship and joy among friends at Whispering Creek Senior Living and Wakefield Health Care Center. Marilyn will be remembered for her kindness, strength, and unwavering love for her family. Her legacy will continue to inspire and resonate with all who knew her. Ellen J. Schmidt, 98, of Sioux City, passed away on February 20th at a local care facility. There will be a private celebration of life for family and friends at a later date. Arrangements are under the direction of Christy Smith Funeral Homes of Sioux City. Ellen Jensen Schmidt was born on January 19, 1926 in Omaha, the daughter of Jens and Jensine Jensen. Ellen spent her earliest years in Omaha before the family moved to Rodney, Iowa. She spent the remainder of her childhood on the family farm in Rodney, graduating from Smithland High School in 1944 with further education at National Business Training School in Sioux City. On January 25, 1947, she married Dwayne Schmidt and the new couple made their home in Sioux City. Ellen worked for Securities Acceptance Corps and Remington Rand Office Machines, later becoming a full-time homemaker to care for her two children. In later years, she returned to work for the Container Corporation of America, retiring in 1983. She and her husband subsequently returned to the family farm in Rodney. She enjoyed knitting and crafts, exploring her Danish heritage, including two trips to Denmark, and becoming involved with local museums. Since her husband was an avid gardener, she also became, of necessity, an accomplished garden processor, freezing and canning food for the entire family. She enjoyed family visits and meeting friends at Timber Ridge on a regular basis for breakfast. In 2018, she and her husband sold the Rodney Farm and moved to Whispering Creek Senior Living in Sioux City, where they enjoyed the company of new friends. To send a flower arrangement in memory of Ellen Jansen Schmidt, please visit the Christy Smith website. On February 14th, Mercedes Irene Bowerly-Dries entered into eternal rest in Centennial, Colorado. Memorial services will be held at 11 a.m. Friday, March 1st at Horan and McConaughey uh, Home at 11150 East Dartmouth Avenue in Aurora, Colorado with a reception to follow. There will also be a viewing from 4 to 6 p.m. on Thursday, February 29th. Interment will be at 1 p.m. Monday, March 4th at Fort Logan National Cemetery in Denver, Colorado. Mercedes Irene Bowerly was born on July 30, 1939 to Floyd Nelson Bowerly and Marie Estella Harding in Lamars, Iowa. Around the age of seven, Mercedes moved to a farmhouse near Westfield, Iowa, where she attended the Westfield Consolidated School until graduation in 1957. Mercedes was united in marriage with Ronald Dreas on April 9, 1962 at St. Boniface Church in Sioux City. The couple resided in South Sioux City where they raised their family. Mercedes enjoyed ballroom dancing, roller skating, basketball, listening to the Grand Ole Opry, playing card games, and attending all the activities her children were participating in while raising them. In addition to being a loving mother, Mercedes was active in the St. Michael's Church where she was a lector and volunteered her services for various church activities. Mercedes had several occupations throughout her long life working at Zenith, Public School Cafeteria, Region 4 Services, and Gateway Computers. 
After retiring, Mercedes spent some time living in Crestview, Florida, before returning to Nebraska and finally settling in Aurora, Colorado. Brian David Moan, 64, of Happy, Texas, and formerly of the Aurelia and Cherokee, Iowa area, passed away on Monday, February 19th, after a valiant fight against pancreatic cancer. Arrangements are by Brooks Funeral Directors. Brian was born January 20th, 1960, to Arnold and Arlene Moan. He grew up on the family farm between Aurelia and Cherokee, truly enjoying the farm life. He was confirmed in 1974 at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Aurelia. Brian graduated high school in Aurelia in 1978 and went on to attend Iowa State University, graduating with a bachelor's degree in animal science in 1982. Brian came back to the farm and for many years raised livestock and grain. Brian continued his interest in livestock and animal production by working in the meat industry for a number of years. In 1998, Brian married Glenda Hallman. They later divorced. In later years, Brian took classes through Western Iowa Tech Community College and earned an associate degree in financial services. In 2016, Brian fulfilled a lifelong dream and became a resident of the great state of Texas, settling down near the town of Happy, Texas, the town without a frown. Brian began trucking in 2010 and continued after moving to Texas until cancer forced him to quit. Brian will always be remembered for his interest in the farm life and his animals. He also enjoyed the company of friends and celebrating events with them. Brian always enjoyed himself, and no one could say that Brian never had any fun. Brian's wishes were to be cremated. At this time, there is no memorial service or celebration of life planned. Violet Lulu Sly, 95, of Sioux City, died February 22nd. Funeral service will be at 10 a.m. Monday, March 4th. Visitation will be at 9 a.m., all at Christy Smith Chapel, Sioux City. Burial will be at Memorial Park, Sioux City. William L Lewis Harrison, 83, of Lawton, passed away February 19th. Per his wishes, cremation has taken place and there will be no services at this time. Arrangements are under the direction of Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City. And that concludes the obituaries for this um, weekend. Um, we'll now move to the editorial page and we'll begin with an editorial from the Journal Editorial Board. Um, and it's headlined, Bill Shines More Light on Government in Iowa. Thank you, state legislators, for, for believing we need to strengthen Iowa's open meeting laws. In the Iowa House Thursday, lawmakers voted to increase penalties for public officials who violate the open meetings law and require them to attend open meeting and records training. Too often, as we've learned in Sioux City, discussions in closed sessions wander beyond the exceptions the law permits and you, the voter, are left unaware of the talks. Two issues in Davenport prompted the bill, according to Representative Gary Moore, Republican from Bettendorf. Journalists and others had difficulty getting public information about an apartment building collapse and about a separation deal that was reached with the city administrator. Repeatedly, the media was stonewalled. 
Closer to home, a judge earlier this month ruled a January 24, 2022 meeting the Sioux City Community School Board closed to the public went beyond its stated purpose of evaluating the professional performance of then-Superintendent Paul Gausman. As part of a lawsuit Gausman filed against the district and four board members, District Judge Jeffrey Neary also found a closed meeting on November 30, 2022 did not violate state law. Iowa's open meetings and records, or sunshine laws, are intended to make government at all levels as transparent and accountable to the public as possible. There is a legal presumption that meetings of government bodies should be open to the public, except in limited circumstances, spelled out in Chapter 21.5. When those exceptions are invoked, the public should have confidence those discussions behind closed doors do not roam into non-exempt areas. That's where elected boards get in trouble. They think they can talk about anything in a closed session. Limits must be followed. Under House File 2539, public officials who go outside those boundaries would face fines. If an official knowingly violates the fines, the laws would increase. The fines would increase. Such penalties would get elected officials to think twice about jumping into closed door meetings without a legitimate reason. While there is an out, members of public body can be exempted if they can prove they voted against a closed session or relied on the decision of a court or different body, they need to conduct as much business as possible in open session. Then, those who elected them can see where they stand on a host of issues. Take the board governing the new Woodbury County Law Enforcement Center. Repeated requests for information related to the construction of the new jail have fallen on deaf ears, yet costs continue to mount. Local officials hear about the added expenses, but they, and the media, don't get complete answers as to why. Greater transparency would help residents understand why the project's costs continue to mount. House File 2539, which passed the House with a 92-2 vote, could strengthen the state's open records and meetings law and let everyone in, the into, in on the decision-making. We think it's a great step toward more transparency, one that could help public officials regain the trust of the people who elected them. Now, they need to consider the benefits of news conferences, town halls, and other forums that would encourage everyone from the governor on down to explain why they voted the way they did. And we have two letters to the editor. The first one is written by Megan M. Sloma, who is a fourth generation Sioux County landowner. And she writes, and the beat goes on for those of us along the route of the CO2 pipeline proposed by Summit Carbon Solutions. It has been around two years since most of us first heard about the project. Many aspects of the project are very concerning and we have received little to no information to allay our fears. We continue to meet with local government officials with the hopes of getting sensible setback distances from the pipeline established. Homes, schools, hospitals, nursing homes, and the like will find themselves in danger if this is not done. Landowners and supporters continue to lobby state government officials to enact legislation to put guardrails on the use of eminent domain. All Iowans must realize that their property may be the next target if eminent domain use for private projects is allowed. The number of affected landowners recently grew when 
12 poet ethanol plants agreed to sign up to be on Summit's pipeline. That doubles the number of facilities along the Summit route in Iowa and totally changes the footprint of the project. Sadly, many landowners and neighbors are unaware that they are on the route of the newly expanded project. The Iowa Utilities Board is currently considering whether or not to grant Summit's permit to construct the project. It no longer seems appropriate for them to consider the application before them as it no longer encompasses Summit's full vision for the project. And again, this was written by Megan M. Sloma, fourth generation Sioux County landowner. Then the second letter is written by Randy Giles of Sioux City. And Randy writes, Yes, the founders granted us the right of free speech, but restrictions exist. Discerning a threshold is vital in relation to our public institutions. While attending an online master's program at the University of Iowa, one of our first assignments was to introduce ourselves to our cohort, cohort via the platform Canvas. Thereafter, one student posted anti-Semitic tropes, which immediately caught my attention. Canvas was then utilized, with no interaction from the professor, to solicit support and organize a potentially combustible on-campus rally at the main library. I brought this to my professor's attention, but he was dismissive and took no action. I contacted the program's advisor, who purportedly was going to act, but the governor's office then suggested that I bring this matter to the Office of Institutional Equity. The OIE informally investigated and found no one at fault. Rather, it was deemed a free speech matter. This student's post would have been far more appropriate on a student-run thread where wide-ranging discourse is encouraged. However, the diatribe occurred on a required platform which students must employ to post their assignments. Public institutions supported by public monies must do a better job at protecting their students from such harassment. And again, this was written by Randy Giles of Sioux City. And we have a, another opinion piece, which is written by Mike Nag, who is a Republican and is Iowa Secretary of Agriculture. One of my favorite days of the entire year is a Century and Heritage Farm ceremony that takes place during the Iowa State Fair. During the all-day event in the historic Livestock Pavilion, hundreds of multi-generational farm families, many in matching t-shirts, wait their turns to proudly walk across the stage to receive recognition for owning a Century Farm for 100 years or a Heritage Farm 150 years. Since the Century Farm Program launched in 1976 as part of the country's bicentennial celebration, over 21,000 farms have been honored and more than 1,800 farms have received the Heritage Farm distinction since the program began in 2006. It's truly a special milestone for each family. Earning the Century or Heritage Farm designation is a culmination of a lot of hard work, sacrifice, and determination generation after generation. This family farm is their legacy. Through market volatility and family dynamics, world wars and the Great Depression, political changes and pandemics, unpredictable weather and a farm crisis, the advent of the internet and many other production innovations these farm families have persevered and found a way. 
Their resilience is why Iowa is famous for agriculture and why agriculture continues to drive our state's economy. This long and proud tradition of multi-generational farm, family farming is the reason I am steadfast in my support of efforts to protect Iowa's valuable and precious farmland. As I visit with Iowans in my travels to each of our state's 99 counties every year, farmers and non-farmers alike share serious concerns about foreign adversaries buying our farm ground. It's a concern that has made its way into the current presidential campaign, has spurred federal legislation, and has led to other states creating their own laws. Fortunately, Iowa already has some of the strongest state-level protections against foreign ownership in the nation. In the 1970s and the early 1980s, our legislators and former Governor Bob Ray had the foresight and vision to put in place our current law. While not perfect, Iowa's foreign ownership law has largely been effective and is now serving as a model for other states to follow. However, like many issues, it's important that we revisit the law from time to time, evaluate if changes are needed, and, if necessary, find ways to modernize it for the future. Over the past several months, I have been working closely with Governor Reynolds and Attorney General Byrd, as well as key legislators, on a proposal that can give Iowans further confidence that our invaluable farmland will not end up in the hands of foreign actors. The legislation focuses on three key areas. First, we must strengthen reporting requirements so there is full transparency about who owns our land. Secondly, the Attorney General must have the tools she needs, including subpoena power, to fully and aggressively investigate any concerns that arise. Finally, we need tough penalties that punish wrongdoers while also serving as a formidable deterrent to those who would otherwise attempt to break our laws. As we pursue these improvements, it's important that we maintain our balanced approach to foreign ownership and investment in this state. We have many foreign-owned businesses with a footprint in Iowa in communities big and small. These businesses contribute to the vitality and vibrancy of our communities, providing job opportunities for an estimated 50,000 Iowans and important products and services. This is where balance is key. We unquestionably want to keep job-creating business investment coming into the state while clearly preventing foreign entities from directly competing with and displacing our farmers by owning farmland into perpetuity. Throughout each year, in partnership with the big show on WHO Radio and WMT, as well as the Coalition to Support Iowa's Farmers, I recognize about a dozen families farm families with the Worgen Good Farm Neighbor Award. Many of these families own and operate century or heritage farms and are part of the lifeblood of the communities they call home. They represent the very best of Iowa, the kind of people who volunteer to assist with community events, bring supper to a church member just home from the hospital, coach the youth baseball team, lead the 4-H club, and pull a neighbor out of a snowbank. These families make Iowa special and unique and are the reason I remain committed to keeping Iowa farm ground in American hands. And again, this was an opinion piece written by Mike Nag, who is the Iowa Secretary of Agriculture. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for uh, Sunday, February 25th. I'm your reader, Dagna. 
You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening.